edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is February the 1st, 2019. This is episode 2,372. 2,372 times now. We've gotten together with a new edition of the Survival Podcast. Time marches on. I won't beat you up too much with TikTok today, because I did that yesterday, but... It's freaking February, so the projects you plan for winter, if you haven't really gotten started on any of them, you, you got like two months and it really ain't winter no more. So if you got winter projects, get on them, get building that better life one way or another. Here's what we got today for you. I got like the, the core of the council here on deck today, though uh, someone missed someone, well, you know, she knows who she is, kind of piked this week, didn't get me a segment, so we have no uh, we have no ladies on the council this week, but... We do have some great guys. How about this? Raw versus quick-cooked food from Gary Collins. The skinny on silicon baking mats from Chef Keith Snow. All about yeast strains for making meads with, of course, Michael Jordan, the Bee Whisperer. Using broken solar panels and building solar systems as a side hustle. Sean Mills knocks out two with one segment. Keeping kitchen knives razor sharp with Patrick Rorman of MT Knives. Walkie-talkie radios for you kids from Stephen Harris, The Impacts of Brexit and a Look at Gold and Silver, from John Pugliano, and Building Backyard Fish Ponds, with me, myself, and I, Jack. That's what we're going to talk about today. Before we jump into it real quick, just let me remind you, it is you guys that are supporting members of this show that make it possible for me to come on the air five days a week and do this show for you and put all this great material out. So I thank you so much, those of you that are or have been members. If you're not yet a member or your membership's expired, please consider uh, joining and or coming back to the Survival Podcast. I'm telling you, use the discount codes. If you are a ButcherBox subscriber, if you like ButcherBox, and you're not an MSB member, I just think you hate money. Um, even if you only got a butcher box every other month, you would save $60 a year just on butcher box. If you get butcher box every month, your discount will save you $120 a year with a $50 membership. That's one discount of almost 80. I'm sure you're going to plant some plants and trees this year and do some gardening. We got discounts. We got discounts on everything, guys. Check it out. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com. Click on members. Support the show, put money back in your pocket at the same time. It just makes financial sense. You know, Excel never lies. Build a spreadsheet and check it out. It will pass the test, I promise you. Um, anyway, so let's go ahead and dig on into it. We have a, a question lead off for Gary Collins of The Simple Life uh, on uh, raw versus cooked foods. Gary, take it away, man. Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of the TheSimpleLifeNow.com and author of the Going Off the Grid book series on Amazon and on my website, and also my new The Simple Life series as well. And be on the lookout. I'm actually writing some thrillers right now with another author. We're doing a nine-book novella, and the first one came out really good. Not for sale yet. Be on the lookout. I'll let you guys know. Today, I want to talk about a topic. Let's get to uh, some health stuff, but about kind of the debate, I've heard it I, many times, it seems to be coming up again, raw 
food eating as opposed to cooked food, which is better. You know, there's a group, you know, there's a big movement of the raw food is to basically eat everything raw. And then there's other people who say that cooking, same group will say cooking your food releases a bunch of toxins and especially meat and that it'll eventually it's uh, carcinogenic and it'll give you cancer and kill you. Eh, no, it's, they're, they're not really right on that. We've been uh, cooking food for hundreds of thousands of years. Anthropologists do not quite know um, and archaeologists do not quite know when we started cooking food per se, for sure, but it could go far back as 2 million years plus. They're just not real sure because we're always finding new evidence. But my take on raw food versus cooked food is it depends. I'm a big fan of not taking one side or the other, especially on something like that. You should have some food that is raw, like your fruits and some vegetables, and you definitely should cook your meat if you're going to eat meat. A uh, good way to uh, get sick, especially if uh, you're not getting, you know, a pure f- meat source, which most people don't. And even then, our uh, bio don't, you know, our our gut flora is not adapted to all the bacteria and viruses that roam around today. We've just we've become weaker is the best way to put it. Our immune systems are highly suspect today. So with cooking your food, though, I wanted to get in this topic because nutritionally, and this has been proven, cooking food releases more of the nutrient content of that food. Here's why. It breaks down the cell walls. Uh, in the, the concept of meat, it will actually render fat. It'll, it'll liquefy fat, making it easier to absorb, digest. Even though a lot of it's got to go through a process, protein, it breaks down that fibrous muscle tissue, breaks open the glycogen that's stored in there. And in fruits and vegetables, it'll actually break again down the cell walls. And what this does is you have to look at it from a science perspective of size, molecular size and exposure. When you cook food and then you chew it, it actually, it softens it. You, and the studies have shown this, you can get up to double the amount of nutrient content and absorb it than if you eat things raw. Again, I'm not saying don't eat things raw, just don't eat everything raw. You have to eat a lot more calories because you're not going to be able to break down and absorb the nutrients and those calories as efficiently. Um, I cook a lot of my food, uh, vegetables. Uh, I steam almost all my vegetables, but I eat some stuff raw. And it's just to give you guys an idea of, you know, to get maximum value, nutritional value out of your food, you cook it. That's the way to do it. Um, simple, simple one. I think people like that. I, by steaming and, and obviously cooking my meat, um, by steaming my vegetables and things like that, I notice my digestion is easier. And not only that, but I don't have to eat as much food because I'm getting more calories, getting more nutritional value out of it. So I thought that might be helpful for some of you, a little tidbit of information. Make sure to go check out my website, www.thesimplelifenow.com. All right. Uh, you know, my thoughts on that is some food tastes really good raw. Some tastes really good cooked. Some tastes good partially cooked. And uh, I think that it all works. Um, I, I agree that it. we've been cooked. I think, you know, we don't really know, as Gary said, when the first humans uh, started cooking. But I think it was probably the first time they ever figured out how fire worked and accidentally threw something on top of it and saw what happened to it. I think it's probably about that. That's about that simple. And once you figure it out, hey, hey, we're going to do this. Um, 
I've heard the arguments from the other side sometimes say things to the effect of, well, no other, no other, no other creature on earth cooks its food. No other creature on earth flies in airplanes. No other creature on earth makes phone calls. You know, no, no other creature on earth uses a computer. We're not like every other creature on earth. We are, we are engineers, uh, in, in essence, and we learn how to do things better. Now, sometimes worse, but you know, I, if you're going to make that argument, I think you should get all your clothes and throw them in a pile and set them on fire, uh, and, and then just walk off in the woods and live like every other creature on earth. Well, those are my thoughts. I do think you can overcook food. I, I just wanted to add that. That was my big add on to this. I do think you can completely destroy a lot of the nutritive value in specifically vegetables through overcooking. I really don't think you can do that with meat. You can slow cook meat till it completely falls apart. And it's pretty much what it was when it started out. You may even be able to digest even more of it at that point. But if you take something like a green bean and cook it till it's mush, you have driven off some of the nutritive value. All right, next up, let's talk real quick, real quick segment from Keith Snow here. Somebody asked about silicon baking sheets. Keith, tell us all about that and what should we be using if we're going to go that route. Hey, Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com and the Harvest Eating Podcast. Wanted to talk with Mike from Kentucky about silicone baking sheets. Now, uh, back in the day, the best one was called Silpat, S-I-L-P-A-T. This is one that is made in France, and in the restaurants, uh, these are the type that we used. I think they are probably the best. Um, now you can get them anywhere and everywhere, and I've noticed that they're um, – just cheaper. They're probably made uh, overseas and in Asia, really, really cheap. They rip easy. Um, they're pretty nonstick, but just uh, if if I was investing my money, I'd go for the Silpat. And the best way to care for those, Mike, is not very difficult, but they can get kind of um, kind of greasy. So what you do, what you do is you just put them in uh, warm or you know even hot soapy water, and you know a lot of soap. Dawn liquid, something like that, and just give it a good scrub with a clean sponge and then uh, hang it up to dry. And you will have something that is incredibly nonstick and super versatile. Um, and I do use a ton of parchment paper too, but if, if I had my, uh, my choice, I'd be using the Silpat. So that's what I would do. Check out, um, a link that Jack hopefully will put in the show notes. Um, over to Amazon where you can easily get that, and the Silpat is my choice. Hope that helps. Take care. See you soon. And I uh, do have a link for the Silcot mat in uh, the show notes. I'm going to say I've heard from some people that have health concerns about silicon uh, when it comes to silicon baking uh, and, and, and like muffin tins or whatever. I, I, I just don't think so. I just <laughs> I, I, you know, I, you can make a case, especially with really high temperatures against Teflon. In fact, I think you absolutely can conclusively say that there are health concerns with really high temperatures with Teflon. I think at lower temperatures, Teflon is generally even safe. Uh, people freak out about aluminum, and I guess if you ate really acidic food cooked in aluminum every single day, you could make a case for that, though you'd end up with a hell of a patina after a time. Um, there are some things that we can cook with that we probably shouldn't, but silicon... Um, it, it's just, it's about the most abundant element on the planet. It's everywhere. If, uh, if it was a danger to us, I think we, we'd all be dead and we'd never even evolved as humans. 
I'm just saying. Uh, next up, I have a, a really great segment on different yeast strains and types from Michael Jordan, uh, specifically with the idea of making meads, but this information can be used to make ciders and wines and even beers. Michael, take it away. Hey, I'm Michael Jordan of a bee-friendly company located in Cheyenne, Wyoming. I'm taking your questions on bees, apiary management, and the making of fine meads. Today, we're going to talk about mead, most particular, yeast strains. I've been asked many times, what yeast do you use and why? In my drawer of yeast, there are many I use. I know in my videos of 52 meads in a year, I use a lot of red, star, Cote de Blanc, the little yellow packs of yeast. I do carry many strains, and I wanted to share with you the ones that I use the most and why. Well, of course, from the Red Star family, the Cote de Blanc, formerly known as Erpany, E-P-E-R-N-A-Y, number two. It is a slow-fermenting, low-foaming, and low-flocculating yeast tolerant to low temperatures like we have here in Wyoming. It tends to bring out floral and fruity qualities of wines and can be used in both grape, especially fruity German-style whites, and non-grape wines, such as peach or raspberry. That's why we use it in our peach bellini, where the bouquet is especially desired. The yeast is a cool fermentation and ranges from alcohol from 12 to 14 percent alcohol in volume. Now, I just said Erpany E-P-E-R-N-A-Y. It's a great line of yeast. Erpany is a champagne yeast, meaning it was isolated in champagne France and is used in champagne production. Erpany is used in bottling fermentation because it ferments slowly and is tolerable to cold temperatures. Great for bubbles in your drink with moderate foaming. It's also used in primary fermentations in still white wine. So Cold de Blanc balance is a great for good alcohol and brings out a good dry quality with great bouquets. The next one is Flora Sherry. Used for, you know, form fermentations like ports and many sweet styles. The temperature ranges are between 59 and 86 degrees Fahrenheit, low flocculation, and the alcohol contents range from 18 to 20 percent. During fermentation phase of sherry production, the floral yeast works anaerobically. And as one of the great things about it is it, it creates a waxy coating appears on the yeast cells exterior, causing the yeast to float on the surface and form a protective thick blanket, enough to shield the wine from oxidation which is super nice for meads that you're making that are over 18%. Red Star has the Premier Cuvier, C-U-R-V-E-E, -E, also known as the Praise de Mousse. This is a champagne yeast that is strong acting, low foaming, and they're qualified for barrel fermentations. It impacts a strong yeasty aroma and usually is for secondary fermentations in both, you know, still and sparkling wine. Good for reds and whites alike and for restarting stuck fermentations or sluggish fermentations. It's kind of equal to another brand we'll be talking about, Levin 1118. The flocculation is low, but this gives a great reliable alcohol between 15 and 18%. I just talked about Levin, L-A-L-V-I-N, and uh, they have active dry yeasts. Many of Levin's yeasts are only sold in quantities of 500 milligrams or larger and are intended for commercial rather than home use. Many brew stores carry small packs of the Levin line, and you can get more if you have friends that brew and if you want to buy and chip in and get a big bucket load of yeast. I really like the Levin EC1118 Praise de Muse. This is the original, steady, low-form fo foamer, excellent for barrel fermentation, 
are working on heavy suspended pulps. It is the one of the most popular wine yeast in the world. It ferments well in low temperatures, flocculates well, and produces a very, very compact lees. It is good for champagne base, second bottle fermentations, restarting stuck fermentations, and for late harvest grapes. It's also the use of choice for apples, crab apples, cranberries, hawthorn, and cherry wines. It's an excellent, has excellent properties. And the alcohol is around 18%, and it uh, ferments your meads very fast. Also, the Levin line is the K1 V116, the Montepillar. This strain tends to express freshness of the grape or fruit variety, especially in... Uh, seven blancs, uh, but also in fruits such as peaches, nectarines, kiwis, and strawberries. It's because it produces such a f uh, flowery esters. The natural fresh fruit aromas are retained for longer periods and compared to a lot of other yeast. The strain ferments well under stress condition and may, may be used to restart stuck fermentation. Known among, among Anthologist Brewers is the original killer yeast. K1 dominates almost any fermentation. It is capable of per fermenting 20% alcohol and plus. If it has sufficient nutrients, nitrogen, and fermental sugars, these properties can be employed to boost your alcohol content with this yeast. The line of yeast that I have is called uh, Y yeast. It's W Y E A S T. And it's Venter's Choice uh, Yeast Cultures. Now, I want you to know this line is liquid yeast cultures. And directions come with the cultures, but generally one must use a small portion of diluted juice well and add an active yeast culture to it to make the yeast starter. Additional yeast nutrients, particularly in white wines and high sugar content juices, is beneficial. Now, in this line, I like the 3134. It's called the Sake Number 9. Now, shake or snake or sake is what most people call it. Sake yeast number nine is used with conjunction of koji for making a wide variety of Asian juice, rice-based beverages. Full body profile for a true sake. Uh, man, it is great for plum wines, making rice beers, and it makes high alcohol, and it makes bitter tastes. So it's really cool to use. When you're using stuff with raspberries and cherries, plums, and other stone fruits. Now, also in this line, I like 3347, the water of life. A great choice for alcohol tolerances. Stuck fermentations, stuff that's just not starting out well. It produces a very clean, dry profile. Low esters. Man, it has very volatile aromatics, man. It is a super good yeast if you can find it. And the reason I use it is because it makes great barley wines and single malt liquors because the tolerance is 21 to 27 percent alcohol. So, I mean, you can get in there and you can really mix up a lot of sugar into this and dry out and make a dry profile with huge alcohol and, man, with cream and super aromatics that come out of it. So out of the Y Yeast Venters, man, 3347 is one that I would put in my cabinet. Now, there are hundreds of yeasts out there for one to use. You know, there's classes on yeast usage. Uh, the one offered at UC Davis in California in their brewing school is great. I, I highly recommend it. It's a great class. If you can, uh, you can get a list on Facebook at the Underground Meadery. 
in the file section. Uh, I, I put together a, a huge, a huge thing in there in that section for you. Uh, there's one thing I want everybody to know that, you know, yeast requires a, a balanced diet. Uh, the grape is the only fruit that possesses the perfect balance of sugar, acid, amino acids, phenols, nutrients, and water, significant enough to make a balanced wine naturally. Now, all others, including some grapes that are classified in this aspect, require additives, usually sugar, which we're using honey, some acids, tanning agents, or other nutrients. Next to sulfites and acid, nutrients are probably the most misunderstood additive that we habitually use to activate yeast. You should always look at your yeast and see what nutrients they ask for, other enzymes, uh, you know, firmids, or anything that you need to add to it. I think that you should probably take some classes on yeast if you're looking to get really into brewing or if you become a commercial brewer. And look at uh, taking on some, uh, you know, different yeast strains and, and try a batch with several different types of yeast to see which one you like the best with that blend of must with all your adjuncts and stuff added to it there's a lot that can be used for making your meads bitter bringing out more fruit trace making them dry or or sweet making them sparkly or making them so they're stills i've i'm going to give this link to jack on on the site so you can read the document here which is at the underground meadery so you can just get right in there and look at it but when it comes to yeast you know you could even use baker's bread yeast now your alcohol contents are going to be six to eleven percent but you know if you just got something at home to use i would not you know count it out a lot of people even blend their yeast we know jack for his three flower blend he blends a couple yeast together to get his type of mead that he wants to make try it try many different yeasts like i said the report that i'm giving out and the link that I'm giving Jack is going to help you out tremendously on trying to choose a yeast for your area and for your brewing store. You might even have to ask if they'd uh, order some in. I mean, like the Killer One yeast from Levin is a great one. And like I said, the 3347, the Water of Life is great. You do see me use the little yellow pack a lot on 52 meads in the air because I feel it's the most reliable for fermentation. Hey, I'm Michael Jordan, the Bee Whisperer telling you to get your honey from a beekeeper you respect. Get it from a small cottage industry for a better product and to help someone start out. Hey, and hopefully I'm helping you out, my fellow man, because I know one day... Now, if you've listened to my stuff on mead making, I have pretty much settled on for the majority of my meads uh, doing a, a combination mead of cuvee, cuvee and uh, Pasteur Blanc. And uh, I won't get deep into it because Jordan just gave you tons on yeast there. But... I did work out over time why it attenuates out so well, and it's basically one of the yeasts. They're both high alcohol tolerance, and one of them is really fast and really tough and, 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 and quick early on at lower alcohol levels, and the other one has a much kind of – it's better, better at finishing the race, so to say. And so I like really well-attenuated meads. And I, I want my meads high alcohol. I want them dry. I don't want a bunch of sweetness and sugariness in my meads. It's just not my way. That doesn't mean it's wrong. It's just what I prefer. And you can do so much just by changing yeast. 
And I think it's important to point out that the way that I came up with the yeast that I use that I prefer is by using different strains and different combinations, making the exact same need. Everything, the honey's the same, the adjuncts are the same, everything was the same except the yeast and tasting them side by side. And I think it's one of the most awesome journeys of discovery that you can do when it comes to making meats. And you might not end up like me where you say, well, I have this one yeast or yeast combination that I use all the time. You may end up saying, well, I have two or three go-tos. When I want to do kind of a, a sweeter dessert meat, I'm going to go here. When I want to do a jack meat, I'm going to go where Jack goes or some other place. And then maybe there's a middle ground, or maybe you have a, a yeast that you prefer for fruit meats and a yeast that you prefer for herbal meats. And with small batch meat making, it's so easy. You can make a batch of meat in 15 minutes. Now, it takes a while for it to ferment and all, but the work is 15 minutes of work, and it's easy to clean up, and it's not spilling, guys, if you spill it in the sink. That's the rule we have here. I didn't spill it if it spilled in the sink. So uh, it just, just some thoughts added on to that. Next up, I got Sean Mills talking about getting a really sweet deal on broken solar panels and uh, also on developing kind of a side hustle business with helping people with solar kits and things like that. And uh, Sean, I think, might have created a new thing. You know, I always say don't be a window licker. Well, Sean says don't be a solar panel licker. Really? Yeah, it'll make sense when he brings it up. <laughs> Sean, tell us what's up, man. Hey everyone, this is Sean Mills with HackMySolar.com and I've got two questions I'm going to answer today. First, I have a question from Michael in DFW about broken solar panels. Michael says, hey Sean, this is Michael from the DFW area and I have found a great deal on solar panels, but they're shattered glass solar panels. It seems everyone interested in solar is under the impression that they must have bright, shiny new solar panels to be effective. My research is leading me to believe this is not the case. Will you please share your opinion on the positives and negative aspects of using solar panels that are not in pristine condition? Thanks for your time. Best wishes in the future. Hey, Michael, good job on finding a source for cost-effective solar panels. Uh, you actually have shared what your price point is on those guys, and you're definitely getting them at the right price. Uh, my opinion here is that if you, if you can get used panels at a price per watt rate that works for you, then go for it. As I've mentioned before, damage to a panel will reduce the output of the panel to the amperage of the worst performing cell. So on a 300-watt panel with 60 cells, if 59 cells are working perfectly and one cell is damaged and is only putting out 50%, you now have a 150-watt panel. Generally, this shading impacts current but not voltage. So you should test your used panels under full sun to determine what the actual output would be to understand what your actual dollars per watt is. Uh, another consideration when building out the array is that the one cell I mentioned before will also impact every other cell that is wired in series with it. So if you have three panels wired in series, that one cell impacts the current of all 60 cells on all three panels. Wiring panels in series makes the voltage additive, but the current stays consistent. 
And as I mentioned, current is what is generally impacted by shading. Uh, so you might have uh, a lot of voltage, but a very small amount of amperage being impacted uh, by that one bad cell. Now, if you wire them in parallel, this isolates the bad cell to the panel that it exists on. Parallel wiring makes current additive. So if you have one panel with four amps and another panel that's broken with two amps, all at 18 volts, you're getting 18 volts at 6 amps to the charge controller. Now, if you're getting bad readings off of U-cells that seem to be in good condition, you can check for burned out bypass diodes or loose connections between the PV cells. These are both common issues and easy fixes if the price is right. The biggest concern you would have with damaged panels would be during rainstorms when the conductivity of water could change the path of the current and create an electrocution hazard. Properly isolating and grounding the array, putting them under a clear poly panel to keep rain off, and you know not going out and licking your panels in the middle of a thunderstorm are all ways to prevent this potential shorting issue from causing harm. I wouldn't mount broken glass panels on my roof, but I know other people who have. I have a metal roof with metal downspouts, and I wouldn't want a broken panel to electrify my roof and gutters, but I would have no issue at all using them on a ground mount system that maybe has a small fence around it with a little keep out sign. Make sure everyone in the family is aware of the potential hazard, knows not to go out and touch the array, just like they know not to take the cover off the breaker box and start playing around in there. All right, now I've got a question from Greg in northern Alabama. Greg says, hey, I've been experimenting with solar and creating my own systems for a little while now. I just started buying some panels in bulk and then reselling them locally. I'm looking into creating some kits and tutorials for people specifically for solar, hot water, preheating, and small off-grid setups. I was wondering if Sean had some advice on what people are looking for in the off-grid community. I'm in the northern Alabama area and would like to help other people get started with solar power. Any suggestions, tips, or criticisms are appreciated. Thanks, Greg. Hey, Greg, first of all, great job on turning your passion into a side hustle and actually generating some revenue. That's awesome. Uh, I'm actually in a similar part of the world as you, and my experience has been there are generally three types of people looking into off-grid solar systems. Those who are looking to move to an off-grid property full-time, those who have a buck-out location or a hunting camp with no on-grid options but they want to electrify it, and those who are looking to move from on the grid to off the grid but stay in the same place. So far, just about everyone that I have spoken to about converting an existing property has decided not to move forward with it. Even people who have paid me for a design have decided not to implement it. And that's because grid electricity is super cheap. Uh, Stephen Harris is right when he says that PV solar is not a great option for most people already on the grid and not looking to move because it's not cost effective compared to grid electricity. Now, those moving to an off-grid property and those looking to electrify a non-residential property are probably your sweet spot. If I were doing what you propose, I would build out a few systems so that you can bring prospective clients to actually see them and see the results. I, uh, this, the system that I described in the December 20th Expert Council show is pretty representative of how most people I speak with are going about their system. They're getting it started with a small investment and then building it up from there, knowing that they're probably going to have to replace a couple components as they grow.
Now, you might be in a good spot if you're going to provide hardware as upgrades could involve you giving a credit and taking back, for example, a smaller charge controller to use in future systems. Free, feel free to shoot me an email at sean at hackmysolar.com. That's S-H-A-W-N if you have any other questions. Well, hey, with that being said, guys, thanks for the questions. Keep them coming. I'm looking forward to answering more for you. So don't lick your solar panels. And I want to say about, you know, people doing conversions. I don't think people are going to be doing conversions anything anytime soon. But I think more and more people are going to start doing additions uh, where they're doing grid tie and stuff like that. Um, even Stephen Harris, some of the deals that have come out on solar panels lately has been like, yeah, you might want to pick some of these up, even if you're on grid. Um, the cost of solar is going to get continuously driven down the footprint per watt is going to be continuously driven down we're 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 nowhere near completing like the ultimate of what we can do on cheap efficient we're not there and we're going to get to a point where if you can look at the cost of your electricity over even let's say five years and say, well, I spent seven cents a kilowatt for the power that came from those panels. Um, if they last another five years, it's free electricity. In, in, in a big way, because most people are paying about 10 cents a kilowatt from the electric company. So whether it's a grid tie, grid tie with battery backup, you're going to see more and more of that. Right now, storage is the expense. Really, panels are a good deal right now. They're already a good deal. When you can do... Solar with storage for about seven cents a watt, and we're going to get there. We are absolutely going to get there. Um, every home in America that can afford the initial expense will have solar panels and, and, and power backup because it will be a completely selfish thing to do. It will be completely in your own best interest to do it. It will be financially the right decision. Excel will, literally, when you build an Excel spreadsheet, unless you live someplace crazy where you're like right next to the hydro plant or something in Washington where you're paying four cents, most of, and most of America, when you, when you make the Excel spreadsheet, remember Clippy? Clippy will come back. Clippy was a little guy that said, looks like you're typing a letter. He showed up in all the Microsoft Office products. Clippy will come back, and he will scream at you through your, your, your screen. Why aren't you doing this? That, that's what happens when that number gets there. We're pretty close to that number already with panels. We're not there with storage. The storage is what's going to put it over the top, because then all of a sudden you got backup power. You can dollar-cost average against the power company. Uh, and I think the power companies, as much as they've held a grip on centralization, are going to become the, the biggest advocates of decentralization. Because what will not happen is people will not be able to generate enough power to have all the shit that they want off of their rooftops. They're not going to be able to do it. What they're going to be able to do is generate a whole shitload of power and bank a bunch of it. And the power companies are going there's already been tests we've already covered where they basically give you a Tesla Powerwall for stupid cheap on a rental basis. And those programs will work out and it will be better for the power companies to store the power decentralized at their customer premise than it will to be able to build any more peaker plants. 
And that's what's going to happen. So I think there's a future in this, but I do think you're going to have you know a lot of people that like to talk about it when they really look at the numbers and they really look at the payback right now. There's still a lot of places where it just doesn't make sense. Uh, next up, I have a question for Patrick Rorman on keeping your kitchen knives razor sharp. Patrick knows a little bit about keeping a knife sharp. Patrick, what's up? Hey, guys. It's Patrick with MT Knives coming to you today with today's expert counsel question of the week. Today's question comes from Daniel. He says, what do you recommend for sharpening kitchen and butcher knives? Do you recommend a whetstone or something else to sharpen my knives? We are doing more of our own animal processing and would like to keep my knives razor sharp for that. I do use a ceramic hone and have decent quality knives, but I was curious what else I could do to get them sharp for those big processing days. Thanks, Daniel. Well, Daniel, it's good to hear that you're doing your own processing. I feel like uh, processing livestock is a very simple thing to do, and it's rewarding to do it yourself and be in control of uh, what goes in the scrap bin and what stays, you know, stays in your freezer. So, I've done a lot of processing myself for a while. I worked at a meat locker. We also butchered our own chickens on the farm, and even a cow, goats, just whatever. When it comes to sharpening day here, the way that I do it is, first of all, I like to start off with all my knives sharp. I'll go through and sharpen all the knives the day before. But then as we're sharpening to touch up, a lot of times what I'll do is I'll have my 1,000 grit king water stone. And I will just, uh, the minute that knife quits cutting the way that I want it to, I'll go give it a few passes, bring that edge back, and go right back to work. I don't mess around with stropping it on newspaper or stropping it. I just go straight to the 1,000 grit stone. I get my edge established, and then I go back to work. When I worked at a meat locker, I used a steel a lot. The, a steel is good, and you could have one at the table and, and straighten up your edge every now and then. But I just find it easier for me just to go ahead and uh, go back to that 1,000 grit stone and pull that edge back up, takes a few passes, and go back to work. I would suggest that if you're going to use a steel, go ahead and have a steel. If you feel like it's not doing much, you could uh, go with a diamond rod or the ceramic. I'm not sure if the ceramic that you have is a rod or not, but uh, I do like the ceramic as well. A lot of times, as long as you start out with a sharp knife, you, it doesn't take a whole lot to get that edge brought back. The other thing I would say is, what kind of surface are you working on? If you're working on like a stainless steel table or something like that, make sure to have a cutting board or something underneath that table that your knife's not com coming in contact with the, the cutting surface. And also be careful on how you're using your knife that you're not getting too, too aggressive and getting it into the bone a lot. The bone is not going to affect your knife too bad, but it will affect the edge, especially if you're really... Uh, exerting some pressure. Those are some tips that I've, I've found have been helpful with the uh, what I personally do is just go to that 1,000 grit, pull that edge back, and then get back to work. Nobody wants to spend any more time than they have to processing, especially if you're doing a cow or something like that. It's It takes a lot of time. We used to be able to process 100 uh, meat birds in about four hours with uh, my wife and the kids and then a couple neighbors to help. So it goes really fast when you have sharp sharp knives and you know what you're doing. You have a good system set up in place.
So, anyways, thank you for the question, Daniel. I hope uh, hope that helps you out. Let me know how your next butchering day goes. And anybody else who has any questions, feel free to send them over to Jack at the Survival Podcast. Thank you. Have a great day. So, I mean, I think part of the reason Patrick prefers a stone to a steel is he's got a lot of experience with stone, and he's really good at sharpening with a stone. I am of the other school of thought. I prefer a steel. And I'll give you, and I am not great at sharpening. I'm okay at it. I'm, you know, we talked yesterday about being a, a polymath, right? A, a modern Renaissance man. I believe that being able to take a dull knife and turn it into a sharp knife is a skill that every man should have. So I, I did that and learned how to do that, and I can do that. And I can make a knife shaving sharp. It will not be anything close to what Patrick can do to a knife. And, you know, what Patrick said to me one day is, it's just not a passion of yours. You don't you don't get that excited about making that knife that you know like five percent sharper. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't do what it has, and that's exactly where I'm at with it. From the standpoint of a steel, though, a steel, with some rare exceptions of certain metal that certain knives are made of, will not take a dull knife and make it sharp. What it will do is reestablish an edge that has just been lost, or, and this is this is my preferred way to use a steel. Prevent the edge from ever being lost. So Patrick said when he's using a knife and he's processing and it starts to just at some point cut or not cut the way he wants it to, he'll, he'll, he'll freshen that knife up. I freshen my knife up before that happens. Every single, you know, when I, I go ahead and I'll do something and I'll cut with it and then I'll freshen that knife up and then I'll cut with it again and then I'll, fr- I mean, and I'm not talking like every cut, but let's say that I had, you know, if I was out processing, uh, breaking down chickens, for instance, I broke one down, uh, two days ago. Um, I used a knife and I used a pair of shears. If I had, if I had been breaking down four chickens, I probably would have sharp, hit, hit the steel after the second chicken and then I would have cleaned the knife and hit the steel again when I put the knife away. And if you do that with a steel, you'll find that your kitchen knives, specifically your kitchen knives, almost never need sharpening because they never become dull. And uh, so that's that's my approach to it. My favorite steel is made by a company that I've recommended other products from. The flour sack towels that I recommend for uh, making yogurt cheese come from the same company called Utopia Kitchen. Um, it is a damn good quality steel, and it's not much money. And I have a link in the show notes if you're interested in uh, that particular product. You can look up today's episode. Next up, I have a question for Mr. Stephen Harris on kids and walkie-talkie radios. Hi, this is Steve Harris calling in for the expert panel to answer your questions. Man, I got a good one here. Brings back fond memories. Steve, what is a good handheld radio or walkie-talkie? In the ham radio field, they're called handy talkies. For kids while playing in the woods, walking the dogs, or out fishing in the neighborhood. Kids out just being kids. Uh, my mom freaks out when the kids are out and they're out of sight. The kids are 9 and 12 and they need to explore and play. <laughs> These aren't teacup kids. These are uh, Jack Spearco encouraged kids, it sounds like. So the kids need to go out and explore. But they also need mom to be able to reach them. Thank you, Michael. Well, Michael, as a kid, see, I was born in 67. 
So I'm, you know, the early 70s, and what I wanted more than anything else was I wanted a pair of Radio Shack walkie-talkies. The ones that took the 9-volt battery didn't have any squelch in them. You just got pure static all the time. And when you push the button, maybe you could talk across the house. I think they operated on CB channel 14. And they had a little Morse code button on them with the Morse code written on the handy talkie. And I thought that was it. But... um Let's see, what was it? It was like Scooby-Doo or one of the other um, cartoon shows. They had radios, and they were silent until they pushed the button and they talked. And I wanted one of those, and I couldn't find out. I never couldn't find out what that was. I mean, I was just a kid. I didn't know what a squelch was. So, yeah. So I went on to Amazon and looked at some good stuff and thought about being a kid. And uh, I found some nice ones. It wasn't easy, really, to find some with good ratings and good fake spot grades. Uh, some Chinese name, West Tan Walkie Talkie for Kids. The neat thing I liked about these is they only have three channels. They don't have 22 channels and 23,483 four privacy codes and you know all responder beeps and all that stuff. They just only have three channels, no display, a few buttons, a big push to talk. They're two for twenty-two dollars. They come in blue and they come in pink. Links to these are in the show notes. Uh, they take three or four AAA batteries. So make sure you get your EBL AAA or Amazon Basics AAA batteries for nickel metal hydride batteries for these. You don't need to pay the longer dollar for the end loops. The EBLs or Amazon Basics for the kids playing are just fine. I also have a link in the show notes to a really good EBL charger that charges off of USB. Four batteries at once in two hours. And it uh, runs off USB, or USB-C, actually. Uh, there is another one on there. It's great. It's simple. It's got one big push-to-talk button, like the size of your thumb, right in the middle of it. And they're rechargeable, and these are moving towards business radios. Uh, link in the show notes, and they're two for $35. You're going to need to go look at these and decide which ones are for you. Uh, then there's the more work-oriented, like a construction site radio. Uh, these are actually pretty simple. They're the size of a credit card. They are rechargeable, like the last ones I just mentioned. Good range, good antenna. They even have a docking station. Just when kids come in, they put the, the radio in the docking station, and it recharges. They're four for 60 bucks. So 15 bucks each. Well, you need three of them, two kids and mom. The kids got to talk between each other. You know that. You know that. Mom wants to talk, so right away, anything that has two, you're going to be buying four of because you need three of them. Plus, you need one for a spare, and all these have great drop resistance on them. My favorite Motorola GMRS radios that I told people to get about four years ago on radios1234.com, they're now discontinued by the manufacturer, or the replacements have really bad Amazon feedback. 
Motorola came out with new ones, and the feedback is like three and a half stars. It's like, sorry, uh, you know, I, I don't play that game. So the selections aren't stellar in the area of the GMRS radios, and a Baofeng is just way too mu- many buttons for a kid. So I would really kind of lean towards those, uh, one of the three that I mentioned. Links in the show notes. Well, that's about it for this show. Um, go see which ones you like and you think are going to be good for your situation, for your age, kids. Uh, you got a little three- or four-year-old running around, get them a radio. They will be, especially if they got any geekiness in them, they will be in seventh heaven. Get them a radio before you even get them a phone or a tablet. And uh, it's a whole nother thing, but I highly endorse children having a digital device because they learn at such a voracious rate, and it's not bad for them. It's They can learn so much in uh, with protected content. Well, don't forget, all my stuff is at Stephen1234.com. All the stuff I've done with Jack. Look for the new Stephen Harris membership site coming soon to harris1234.com. All Harris videos will be free with the membership, as well as all the new videos, the rough cuts. I have a ton of new content up there. I have something even better that I've done for information for you than the 1234 sites. And all of my past content is up there from everywhere I have done anything. It's all in one place for you. It's no longer all around the place. Oh, hey, uh, that battery charger and the AAA batteries, the EBL, the Amazon Basics, links in the show notes for you for one-stop shopping. Thanks, guys. Talk to you later. Good question. Brought back fond memories. I wonder where that walkie-talkie is. I probably still have it someplace at my mother's house. If you go to the Survival Podcast Facebook forum, look for my post, and you can tell me not what that is, but what it means, you win a free video of your choice from Steve Harris, Energy1234.com. You know, the the first radios he was talking about, the ones from Radio Shack, I had those radios. They were so cool, and they were useless. <laughs> they had horrible range. We used to play a game we called Guns when I was a kid in our woods, and we realized that by the time you repeated yourself so many times so the other guy on the radio could hear you, all the people that were trying to on the other team knew where you were. And oftentimes you could hear the person through the woods. You couldn't really hear them over the radio. But they were cool, and we used to play around with the uh, the, the the Morse code all the time. I also had it gave me some nostalgia here. I had a toy when I was a kid, probably disappeared from the toy shelves because it was decided that it was legal. It looked like a gun. It was blue and it had a big red satellite dish looking thing on the end of it. It was like a rifle sized gun. And uh, I got it for Christmas one year, and I think it was like something like my dad was like, "Oh, it's kind of cool. He'll like that," and he got it for me. But what it was is it had a, a, a thing like stethoscope earpieces that went in your ears. And you pointed this thing at somebody and pulled the trigger, and it was for listening at a distance. Well, even though this was a toy, and knowing my dad, my dad is a pretty tight-wadded guy, it couldn't have cost very much money. 
But I took this thing outside and I started pointing it at, we live in an apartment complex, I started pointing it at people's apartments, and if they were near your window, you could hear what was going on in that apartment, like you were standing there listening to the people, like you could hear people really good. It had pretty good range too. I'm sure it doesn't work, didn't work as good as I remember it, because when you're a little kid, everything's amazing, especially a little kid in the early 80s. But... I don't know where this thing went. I don't know what it was called. I'm wondering if any of y'all in this giant audience know what I'm talking about. If you had one, too, what it was called, does it still exist? Because I haven't seen anything like this forever. And I'm, I know there's things that do what I'm talking about. But this thing, it worked at like a creepy CIA level. And it was a toy made in the 1980s. What happened to it? Young Jack Spirico, thinking he was an engineer like many of his electronic toys, took it apart one day to see how it worked. Uh, and uh, usually when a little boy takes apart an electronic to see how it works, what he actually sees is a lot of cool little devices and resistors and transistors and stuff in there that he pulls out and disconnects, and you know, he doesn't figure out how it works because it never works again. That's what happened to that thing. But just wondered if anybody knows what I'm talking about. And... If you know something similar, that's fine. But, I mean, I want to know, does anybody know the actual toy? Like, you know, because if it's nostalgic, it's probably on eBay. Somebody's selling them used or something. It just would be kind of a cool thing to see if it, and be like, yeah, that is what I'm talking about. Because if I saw a picture of it, I would know absolutely that is the thing. That's the one right there. Anyway, next up, uh, i got John Pugliano. He wants to talk to you about the impacts of Brexit, and a little bit about precious metals. John, take it away. Hey, TSP. Today we're going to talk about something you guys love to talk about, and that's gold and silver. Right now, a lot of people are extremely excited of the major run-up that we've seen in gold and really in silver. Silver's made a great recovery since its lows back in November. But before you get too excited... Before you start piling in on all the marketing things that you're hearing about where the central banks are buying gold and Goldman Sachs is trying to corner the market on silver and George Soros is stocking up on precious metals, before you start falling for all that hype, remember that over the last month, there's been a huge run up in almost all the asset classes. Look at the S&P 500. Since Christmas Eve 2018, the S&P is up almost 15%. So why is that? Is that because the central banks are buying the S&P 500? Is that because George Soros is stocking up on the S&P 500? Is that because Goldman Sachs is trying to corner the market on the S&P 500? No, of course not. None of those things have anything to do with the rise in the S&P 500 over the last month, and they probably don't have anything to do with the rise of gold and silver over the past two or three months. So what is accounting for the rise, and is it time to buy, or is it time to sell? I'll get to that in a minute, but before we do, I want to use this as a teaching moment. And I've stressed this before, I'm going to stress it again in the future, but I really want to hit on it now. When it comes to any type investment, whether you're investing in stocks, or bonds, or real estate, or precious metals, you have to remember that you're not investing in a vacuum. Money is fungible. Investors have a choice, and so you can never be narrow-minded or myopic. You can't just look at one asset class. You have to be willing to look at the whole landscape and then move where you think it's appropriate for your risk tolerance. Now, I bring all this up because if you're looking right now at just the price of gold and silver, you're going to be missing the big picture. You need to also be looking at what's happening with copper and with oil. 
because copper and oil are the two commodities that really give you the most insight into what's happening with a global economy. If I look at these four commodities in unison and I look at them over the last four years or so, I think they're telling a similar story. And that narrative is that all these commodities fell apart and put in a low during the market downturn at the end of 2015, the beginning of 2016. If you remember going back to January of 2016, that's when oil actually hit $28 a barrel. But once the price of oil had bottomed out, then it and all the other commodities started to slowly rise up. The fear had passed. Investors realized that the prices had gotten too low, everything had been oversold, and prices started to quickly move up, and then they actually hit an accelerant. And this is what's important. By the summer of 2016, those four main commodities, copper, oil, gold, and silver, they all spiked up again. The big political event that was taking place then was the uncertainty around Brexit. Leading up to that vote and immediately after that surprise decision, is when the price on all these commodities erupted. And then once the initial shock had passed, things started to calm down, prices started to come down. But what happened that fall? It was the surprise election of Donald Trump. Again, prior to the election, these commodities had all bottomed out, and then immediately following the election, they all started to rise. When Trump got elected, the thought was that he was going to do a lot of the things that he has done. Cut taxes, decrease regulation, and stimulate the economy with a lot of debt. Well, he has done that, and since both demand and inflation would likely rise under those type of situations, the prices on all those commodities went up. Think back to January 2018. At that time, all the experts were talking about global synchronized growth. Copper got up to about $3.30 a pound. That's the highest it had been for about five years. Likewise, oil, silver, gold, they all started putting in tops sometime between January and June of 2018. But then the outlook on the economy shifted. There was fear of not only an economic slowdown, but also rising inflation that would cause the Federal Reserve to jack up interest rates, which would cool off the economy. And so by the end of 2018, all the asset classes were down. Everything but the bond market had fallen significantly, but here we are a month later, People realized that things got oversold, the price got too low, and now the prices are recovering as these stocks and commodities get back to where they should be at around their fair value. Other than the fact that gold and silver were oversold, the biggest reason that I think they're doing so well right now, and I think they're likely to continue to do well, maybe into the end of March, has to do with two primary things. Number one is the Federal Reserve and the fact that they've loosened up on their policy and that it appears they're going to be patient on raising interest rates this year. That's likely to mean that the dollar won't appreciate as much. If the dollar moves down, consequently gold and silver should move up. The other factor, and I think this is more important, is the fear and uncertainty that we're seeing around Brexit. The Brexit deadline is March 29th. And because I don't think a resolution is going to occur until the last minute, that should keep the markets on edge. And if this drama continues to play out, well, it's very likely that gold and silver could perform exactly the way they did back in the summer of 2016. That's when gold got up to about 1375 and silver, I don't remember, I think it might have gotten up to about $21. So if you bought gold and silver a few months ago when they hit a low, good for you. 
under normal conditions, I'd be concerned because I think there's a lot of resistance for silver anywhere between $16 and $17 an ounce. There's a lot of overhead pressure there. I think only the fear of Brexit will push it higher. But if you want to hold out for the real Brexit drama, you could see it get up, you know, in that range of $20. And likewise for gold, there's a lot of resistance between $13.10 and $13.50. Gold has only broken out above that point once in the past five years, and that occurred during the Brexit vote in 2016. So yes, I think these commodities are likely to run up farther, but I personally would start backing off on my positions as we get towards the end of March and the resolution of whatever's going to happen between the United Kingdom and the European Union. Well, hey, that's just my opinion. As always, I appreciate your questions. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. Good stuff from John. Uh, I'm going to do my segment here on building backyard fish ponds, and I'm actually tying this all the way back to Monday. And Monday this week, I answered a question for Steve Larkin, and uh, he was looking to potentially build a, a pond that he would stock with catfish and let the catfish eat quail droppings, which is just not going to work. So we, we talked him out of that. Uh, but we did talk about using black soldier fly larvae uh, to feed the catfish or any fish and using the quail droppings into a black soldier fly bin to, uh, to take care of the quail droppings, make compost, and produce lots and lots of black soldier fly. And Steve said that when he tried to do a worm bed, what it ended up being was a bunch of black soldier fly larvae. The whole thing was full of them. So, yeah, he knows it works. What he didn't like about that is because it was designed as a worm bed, it didn't make a very good black soldier fly bin. So the only way you could get them out of there is basically to shovel through all this poop and try to get them out with a shovel. Well, if you build this properly, they will take them, they get themselves out of the bin. So Steve's pretty hip now on doing a pond of sorts. And these are his two options as to what he was looking to do. One would be to get like the biggest stock tank they make, which as far as I know, and if you know of a bigger one, let me know. But as far as I know, the biggest stock tank that you can just buy and, and have delivered or go pick it up on a trailer is an eight foot round by two foot deep. And that would be about 675 gallons. And so one option for him, he has thought, is to partially bury one of those. You can pretty much almost completely bury one of those if you want to, and that definitely will help it. And what I didn't like about them, and I would, I would go with poly over galvanized for this, but what I never have liked about those is the look of them because most of them are a really bright blue, and it just really sticks out, and I just don't like it. Um, but Atwoods, and that's a store we have here in Texas. I don't know how big they are, but Atwoods has eight foot, uh, round by two foot deep poly stock tanks, double wall insulated, uh, in a gray. And it looks a lot better. Uh, Russell Feeds also has them in gray. So they exist. And, and, and so you could go that route. But again, I want you to think about this number, 675 gallons. He also said, you know, what about doing something like you did with the wood framing? So for those who haven't seen it, I right now have one pond. There will be a second one built this spring. We'll talk about that in a second as we go through this. And it's what made it easy for me to do this for Steve. So basically I'm doing design consultation on the air right here. But I built mine, and I could only get where I, where I built mine, I was only able to get maybe six inches down to my rock slab. 
Uh, really f not a good area to dig a hole, but it was a good area to put the tank. And then I took eight-foot four-by-fours, and we just basically log cabin style, each end overlapping, built an eight-foot square uh, tower. You want to think about it that way. And it ended up with about 36 inches of water in it. But the, the top rail where you stick your arms on when you're standing there staring at it is about 40 inches because there was a, a, the way I've done this, this is what I would recommend to give yourself some freeboard in it is so your last 4x4, four four, you, you're going to go for your height. You then put an EDPM liner in. And it's kind of fidgety to put a, a liner in a square tank, but it's not that difficult. I was really worried about trying to make the corners perfect, and I ended up just not even worrying about it and just letting the cap rail hide it. And, it, and once it kind of becomes a pond, like when you first put it in, the water's crystal clear, and you can see everything, and all the liners show up and all. Well, you know, a, a year into it, it's still, my water's clear. I've got videos where I take my a jar, like a, a mason jar, And go down in the water and hold it up and it's crystal clear. But you don't see everything anymore because you got algae and you got, you know, just biology and life going on in there, which is why the water is clear. So it's pretty easy to do, but you come over that last course of 4x4s and pull your, uh, your liner in. Then you put one more course of 4x4s. And wherever you want that to discharge when it overflows, you basically cut out like a half thickness overflow hole. And what I didn't do and I should have is at that point I think it would make a good good idea to put a bead of silicon between the top boards and the liner so that it really is sealed and it'll force it out of that discharge because you're probably not going to be perfectly level no matter how hard you try. Ask me, I know. Am I I'm close. I'm talking millimeters. But millimeters are millimeters, and it still kind of seeps between the, the top course, not quite where I want it to discharge sometimes. So um, so you do that, and then that gives you another three and a half inches over wherever your top is of your water. And then if you use something like you know two-by material, like two-by-twelves to make rail caps that and let them overhang, that hides that liner roll, and it looks really good. And it gives you a nice rail to set a drink on and hang out and what have you. So that brings you up then, you know, another inch and a half. Because a two-by is really an inch and a half-by, right? So you've got three and a half plus one and a half. So you got four, five inches right there, right, um, of additional three and a half. What did I say? Yeah, three and a half, four and a half and a half is five inches, right? So you got five more inches above the water level. So if you have a 30-inch height, and you're six inches in the ground, um, you're still at like almost 36 inches. So you got to work that in. Anyway, what I suggested to Steve, since he lives where he can dig and he has like, you know, a tractor with a digger attachment, I'd dig a damn hole as deep as I wanted it and I'd only build it up maybe a couple feet. This is kind of what I'm going to do. Um, if you dig a hole, there's zero construction costs other than the liner that goes in the hole. And Steve, like me, has a lot of livestock. And I imagine that he'd want to make sure ducks didn't jump in there and swim around and, and, and crap the place up. So about 30 inches is what I found that if you have something 30 inches high, pretty much unless you have ducks that fly, they're not going to get in it. So I'm going to build one of these, and I'm going to do a 12 by 12 or a 16 by 16. I hadn't decided yet. 
we think with with a mini X we can get about a foot deep and drive things down, and that way you can go below grade, and that's great. What what I'm getting at here is that what you really want to do when you build any kind of a pond is create thermal gradient. And the deeper you are, the more thermal gradient you have. So let's go back to that eight-foot round stock tank, because it's simple. You set it somewhere, you fill it up, you turn on a pump, and it's, it's a pond. And it can be that simple. Um, you only have two feet of depth. Even if you bury it a foot, now you're only a foot in the ground, but you only have a foot above ground. That water temperature can come up in temperature and go down in temperature way faster than just one more foot, three feet. So if we look, and then when you go to a square versus round, you gain the corners in volume. So again, that eight-foot stock tank is 625 gallons. An eight-foot by eight-foot by three-foot deep cube-type pond, really a rectangle, is 1,196 gallons. It's almost double. And when you're doing eight by eight square, every foot um, just checking the calculator here right now to make sure I'm right. It's about 400 gallons. So if you have three foot, you're at about 1,200 gallons, right? And if you're if you're at four foot, you're at about 1,600 gallons. So you can work it out from there. Going to what I'm going to do, which is a 12 foot, you're at about 2,600, almost 2,700 gallons at three foot of depth which is the minimum depth that I would do with one of these. And I'm going to try to do four. Um, but if you, when you go to a 12 by 12 cube shape, per foot of depth, you're at like 900 gallons per foot. So even a 12 by 12 cube, only a foot deep, is, is about 30% more water volume than one of those stock tanks. This costs more to do, but probably not if you really want it to look good. Because the stock tank's kind of stock tank-like. So, you know, what you might end up doing then is put landscape timbers around it and then fill them in with dirt, and now that's volume you could have had to your liner. So that's why I really like these things. And we call them Miyagi's because they make you think of Mr. Miyagi's backyard uh, from Karate Kid. They look that good. And I'm not that good of a carpenter. If I can make it look good... I mean, it can really be made to, to be made to look good. The one that I'm going to put in, I'm going to see if I can get my, my buddy David's uh, fr friend Toby to come over and might do the cap rails and cedar and have him miter them because I'm not real good at that stuff. So, I mean, mine, I just blocked them up against each other and they look good. So what Steve really wanted to know, though, is if you build any kind of a pond like this, what do you need so that the fish don't die? What, what is your infrastructure, basically? All you really need, and I'll put a link in the show notes, is a, is a pump. And the pump I would recommend for this, because the one I use in most of my systems, is made by a company called Danner. And they make two that are exactly the same form factor, but one is about 2,000 gallons an hour and the other one's three. If you're just doing one pond, you're not pushing water away from it anywhere, I'd go with the 2,000 gallon per hour pump because it uses only about 80 watts of power. So that's less power than a 100 watt old style incandescent light bulb. So it doesn't use a lot of energy and that saves you cost. And you don't need to move that much water. All you would really need in a, in something, you know, an 8x8 to, to 12x12 size with three or more feet of depth to keep the kind of fish we're talking about, we're talking about things like goldfish or bluegills alive is a spray bar. 
Now, you might go through a period of time where you lose some fish, but they're low-value fish, so you don't care, and you just add more when you're ready. But if you take that pump and, and build a spray bar, so you take about a, a foot-and-a-half to two-foot-long piece of pipe that, that attaches you know, with an with a elbow down to the pump, and it comes out, and you have a, a cap on it or a valve that's closed, and you drill some holes in it, and you just run it like a spray bar like in a live well for a boat, it will pretty much do what you need. It's not what I would stop at, but that's where I would start. Now, what I would recommend then is if, if, you, if you can do it and you can make it look good and you're happy with it, I would put in one aquaponic-style ebb and flow bed. And I have four of them on mine, and there's going to be one by spring on the 8x8. Eight eight. You're not going to ever really do aquaponics with this. And I think it takes too much rail space up. So I'm going to change it to just one. I'm not exactly sure where it's going to be yet and open the rest of those rails up. When I build a big one, it's going to have one. All I want to do is create a biological filter. We've talked a lot about aquariums lately. If you fill that thing with lava rock and don't plant any plants in it and run water and put a spray bar on it and don't even put a bell siphon on it, just put an overflow really low and run water through it, it will do all the filtration you need. It's a biological filter. Bacteria will colonize the rocks, the water will run over the rocks, and it will return to the pond. And the bacteria will help break down the nitrite into nitrate, into nitrate into nitrite, right? And, and, and then the rest of the biology of the pond takes care of everything. He also, now, what I would plant in that, because why not plant something in it? I would plant something like, You know, why don't we eliminate, because this is what I'm thinking, I want to eliminate every point of failure I can. Why don't we eliminate the bell siphon as a point of failure? What you can do is run a constant flow at about 50% fill and plant it with something like Chinese water chestnut. Now, basically, you've got a reed bed, but it's edible. That's what I'm going to do, so that's what I would recommend that Steve would do here. Get some Chinese water chestnut crumbs, put them in there. And just let it go. They'll, they love. They are just eat the hell out of nutrient. Next, the way I've built mine, and I'm, the way I'm going to build the next one is take cinder blocks. They're cheap. They have lots of pores. They're going to get colonized with bacteria, and now you have towers of bacteria that are handling. So you got another biological filter. Yes, they are alkaline. All our water here is alkaline anyway. Our rainwater's alkaline, our well water's alkaline, our city water's alkaline. It's all alkaline anyway. Don't worry about it. It ain't going to hurt nothing. The lakes are alkaline. <laughs> Just let it go. Um, and basically, I build towers. And I build towers, two center blocks side by side, with the holes, let's say, going one direction. The next two, I turn them so the holes go the opposite direction. And I build towers so that they're pretty close to the surface of the water level. Multiple towers like this. Now, you've got a, 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 a pond liner, a rubber pond liner, and I didn't feel real great about a rough, even though they were really strong, a rough cinder block sitting on there. So I bought the cheapest big square floor tiles, like 16 square tiles I could get. Like, I don't care. I went to Home Depot. What do you guys, the cheapest thing you got? You know, like, well, what are you doing? I, dude, I just want the cheapest floor tiles you got. If you got a, a box that's torn, mismatched, I, I just want the cheapest 16-inch ones you got. And you put those on the floor of the, the tank before you fill it up, and you put your first layer of cinder blocks on there. And you go three high, four high, whatever you want, 
And you can have deep shelves and you can have high shelves. But make sure that the holes in the center blocks are always facing away from each other. So you have two towers with a gap in between them. And you're going to build a shelf on top of this. And so if your bottom has the hole uh, on the left tower has the holes going front to back, then make your bottom on the other one go side to side and keep swapping them. This way you're creating habitat for your fish to live inside of it. And your bluegills and all, will go, catfish, everything will go in there. And when they can't see each other, they fight less. So everybody has their own little, little apartment, you know, a little schools group up. We get along, we're going to go in this one, and I'm a big mean one, I'm going to go in that one, that type of thing. Then for your shelving, and this way you create cover for your fish, and you keep sun out from warming, overwarming your tank. You get, again, floor tiles, Home Depot lows. The long ones that look like wooden planks. Two to three make a beautiful shelf. Then you can take pots, just flower pots, whatever kind of pots you want to grow your stuff in. You fill the bottom with gravel and you drill a bunch of holes in it. You put a piece of weed blocker down, or not, it doesn't really matter in this instance. Then you put soil in and you plant plants directly into that and you just set them in the pond. Now you have plants all around your pond. You grow whatever you want. We grow green onions that way. We grow water chestnut that way. We grow mint that way. We grow um, water spinach that way. You don't need plants in one of these systems, but it will be a lot more resilient. I grow ornamental plants that way. I grow um, dwarf corkscrew rush is a pretty plant, you know. So just you can do. I do work cattails in, in these systems, and you can do those in net pots. They can be completely the pots can be completely submerged, and your vegetation is emergent. In Texas, anywhere really, but in Texas, the sun is your enemy, and what you don't want is a big green pond. So you want to keep algae blooms down. Biggest way to do that is cover the surface with surface vegetation. Duckweed, salvinia are great, but in bigger ponds like this, with the amount of water agitation you're going to have, they don't work as well. Water, uh, water hyacinth works good. Water lettuce works good. Either of those are among my favorites. And if you're growing uh, water spinach out of a pot and you let it crawl out onto the surface, it will also be a good cover. And if you do that, you're going to have a healthy ecosystem. Now, I do want to move water. I do want to move water, which means the problem is you can beat up your surface vegetation, turn it over, etc. The easiest thing I've found to do is get like some 3-inch or 2-inch or whatever size pipe you want, PVC, and four elbows and cut four pieces of the same length, however big you want this island of vegetation to be, and, and glue it together like a raft. Now you've got a raft. You sit it in the center, and you leave gaps around the edge. Get some um, stainless steel fencing wire, like used for electric fence, because it won't rust. Aluminum's better. It'll last forever. And use that and, and kind of run a couple wires and hold that raft in the center of your pond. Now your ebb and flow can, every time that, or that constant overflow bed, whatever it is, can constantly drop water down in there. Your spray bar can run full tilt. Your plants have a resting place, and you put all your top growth plants in there, and most of your perimeter is shaded out by your potted plants and your shelving and your towers and all that stuff. So now you've got a very low light signature down into the water. You're not going to have algae problems. Everything's going to balance. Mine has now been running for, I think, almost three years now, and I have not lost a fish in a very long time. And these are not fish that were kindly treated. They were either trapped or caught on line, Line and hook, 
you know, thrown in a five-gallon bucket with a, with a battery-powered air pump, take a rough ride home in a truck, and get thrown in to this thing with no acclimation whatsoever. And it's the one place I've not lost any real significant amount of fish due to a failure or anything like that. Now, what, I would, what I'm going to do when I redesign the one that I have and when I build the new one is I'm going to run pipe, and I already have pipe I had for four beds like this, but run a splitter and then run your pump from a center point, center of one wall, out to the two corners and then over to the next two corners, like a Y, like a football. Think of it the shape of a football goalpost. And then if you're not running ebb and flow beds, just put under, you can put that pipe up under the rail, hold it with plumbing strap and screws. That way it's hidden, but have little spouts to come out with a single straight line valve. You can use half inch for this if you want to. And open each valve just enough to give a little bit of surface agitation. And point, point them all kind of the same way. So you kind of create a whirlpool flow in the tank is one way you could do it. The other way is each two corners could be opposing each other, creating cross-current flows. But creating flows will prevent you from having dead spots in the pond and move things around. And then your fish swimming will move things around. That's the way I would design it. I know it's kind of a complicated thing to do audio-wise, but... Um, if you check out some of my videos, check. I will put a link to my whole series on the timber frame pond. I show how I build it all the way through. This is the big news. It's going to probably be end of March, more likely middle of April. I am going to do a workshop in the spring. I am not doing the kind of workshop you guys are accustomed to where there's 70 people here. And it's four days long. It is probably going to be a Thursday, Friday probably 300 bucks to come to it and 15 people is going to be the limit. If you want to do that, pay attention, keep keep alert. I'll have, you know, I'll I'm not going to say okay, you can sign up today, right? I will announce it at least a week in advance before you can sign up. And it's probably going to be five meals, so it's probably going to be the day you show up, you handle your own breakfast, uh, bring something with you, whatever. Two days of work. First day, we'll do lunch and dinner. The second day, we'll do breakfast, lunch, and dinner for y'all. Um, it will not be the extravagance of a fall workshop, but it's, it's certainly more affordable. It's less days, and I expect most people will be local. Uh, with a small number, you know, we'll just let you guys use the bathrooms in the house uh, instead of having port johns and stuff like that. And most people can probably you know, be able to bed down in one of the outbuildings or something like that. So it should make that more convenient for people, too. Again, this is going to be a 15-person-only thing. Uh, if you're interested in it, just kind of pay attention. If you are interested, it'd be good for me to know how much interest there is in this with the way I just described it. Just shoot me an email. It's not going to put you on a waiting list or anything, but, you know, it'll give me a feeling for how this is going to go. Um, and I think it'll be a lot of fun. But I think it'll be more a project-oriented thing that when you leave, you will absolutely know how to build one yourself. So anyway, with that, we have wrapped up another episode. I want to remind you, if you like the show and the work that we do, uh, you can help support us by doing your online shopping through tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com. You can see all the stuff that I recommend on Amazon there. And as long as you start your shopping there, you help us no matter what you buy. Uh, but today I have a product for you that I've brought around so many times. And the reason I brought it around so many times is it's stupid cheap at 9 bucks. And I really don't think my homestead would be very useful without it. These are mono-price releasable cable ties. So they're zip ties. Well, a little lever that when you want to take it back off of whatever you put it onto, instead of cutting it off and throw it away, you push the lever and take it back off. I use these things all the time. 
They are fantastic. Um, I put my uh, shade netting on my aviary, for instance, and use these releasable cable ties. So the shade netting really needs to come off because I'm getting, getting close to being ready to start doing spring planting out there. And so I keep, take the shading off until we hit summer when it gets really blazing hot and I put it back on. Well, when I take it off, I just take the, the cable ties off and the grommet that's in the netting and just put the tie right back in there, fold up the net, and then it's, it's got the ties with it when it goes back on. And they last about two to three seasons without getting too brittle and, and, and breaking. You know, they are outdoor rated, black UV stabilized. Uh, I've built on the fly, you know, just take four cattle panels and built uh, animal caging for ducks and made duck tractors, eight foot and 16 foot duck tractors out of them. Uh, I, you name it, if you can bind it together, I've done it with a, a zip tie. I won't tell the whole story here, but one of my friends back in the army fixed a tie rod with cable ties. And my buddy, my other buddy and me borrowed his truck, and he didn't tell us until we got back that the tie rod was held together with cable ties. I thought my buddy Brad was going to kill my buddy Dean over that, but it did work. I mean, that's how versatile. I mean, if you give a redneck, you know, cable ties, bailing wire, uh, uh, duct tape, and a Leatherman, we can pretty much fix anything that's fixable without going to a shop. Uh, at least get it by a little, you know, a little bit of time. Anyway, with that, we have wrapped up another episode. Let's talk about our song of the day. This is School Song Week. These are all songs not necessarily about school, but about looking back at the school years, specifically the high school years. Today's song is by a band that has people that I think they have their own haters club. I really do. There's some reason some people really hate this band. It's, I'm not one of them, but it's Nickelback. Uh, and this was a song that really kind of made them big time, and I guess a lot of haters really hate it. I like this song. It's called Photograph. And this song is kind of a, a look back at those years, and it is autobiographical. It's not one of these songs where somebody just made up a bunch of crap in it. Um, it's, it's, it's based on real things. Um, but the guy that wrote it said, it's just nostalgia growing up in a small town and you can't go back to your childhood. Saying goodbye to friends that you've drifted away from, where you grew up, where you went to school, who you hung out with, and the dumb stuff you used to do as a kid. The first love, all of those things. Everyone has one or two of those memories that they are fond of, so this song is just really a bridge for all of that. Yeah, it is. And it, I think that... I think if you're from a small town, you probably like this song better than if you're from a big town or a big city. I, I really do, because I think it's a totally different experience growing up and going to high school in a town of you know 10,000 people or 5,000 people. Uh, going to a high school that has you know a graduating class of 200 versus 2,000. I think it's, to it's totally different. You know, there isn't anybody in your high school, let alone your grade, that you don't at least, we used to say no to see. You know, somebody said, well, you know, you know, Michael Thompson or whatever. Now, I know him, I know who you mean, but no, I don't, not, I'm not friends with them. And like everybody in your class, you know. You know, you, you know about their lives, and they know about yours, and their parents know your parents, and your parents know their parents, and your grandparents know their, you see what I'm saying? It is a different thing. And there's not a lot to do, so you make up your own things to do, and a lot of times it is really stupid. And most first kisses do come either around a campfire or in the back seat of a car, or sometimes the front seat of a car. It's, it, it's the way that it is. Most kids probably hung out around a fire and drank beer before they were old enough to. 
in these small towns. It's just the way that it is. And you remember it fondly, but if you do try to go back there, even a few years after leaving, you really can't. You don't ever fit back into that again because you grew up. And one of the things that will really surprise you is the people that didn't leave, didn't grow up, that are still living like they're in high school. And, and you'll think, wow, I kind of I thought I'd come hang out with them. And, yeah, really don't want to now. You know, they're not nice people, got nothing against them, but just you, your whole world changes, and you can never really go back. And, and that's what this song's about. And, and, and I, I really want to encourage people that look back fondly at their high school years. That's great as long as it's not your glory days, to think of another school song from Bruce Springsteen, right? Your glory day should be in the now and in the tomorrow. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
change.